0: Welcome to the HBG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. This season, we are posting the recordings and Q&A from our HBG Bible Talks event in 2022 with Tim Bunting of West Harlem, New York, titled, How We Got the Bible. It's such a pleasure to be here this morning. Um, It's a privilege to uh, to have this opportunity to share this material with you. It's very fascinating (laughs) material. I think it's very important material. Uh, Hopefully, it'll be useful to you as it has been to me. I guess I should change my PowerPoint here. Um, So, you might or might not know me. My name is Tim Bunting. Um, I've been working or teaching the gospel in New York City, um, Upper Manhattan, Bronx area, primarily since about 2007. Uh, Me and my wife, we just married to Jersey about uh, two years ago i uh, still working in the New York area. Um, uh, we work with a bilingual congregation in uh, West Harlem area. So uh, it's, it's a great place to be working in the gospel. Lots of opportunity. Um, full disclosure, I, I am biased. I, I believe in the Bible. I think the Bible is the inspired word of God. I think it's, it's absolutely essential for us to know how to navigate life properly. I think that's evidenced uh, by the lives of faithful disciples. Uh, I also think, uh, more importantly, it is essential for us to to know how to enter into uh, fellowship with the Father, that God has presented to us the truth, uh, how to have a relationship with him. And I do believe that is revealed in Scripture. Um, This presentation is not going to be about proving that the message of the Bible is true. I believe the Bible is inspired. Uh, This presentation is not about primarily about defending The inspiration of the text. Um, If you do not believe that the Bible is inspired, if you hear more curiosity, um, interested in historical things and so forth, then that's good too. Um, What this presentation is going to be about is how we can know that the message of the Bible has been preserved accurately. And I'm going to say that about a billion times, Um, but whatever was originally written is When I read my Bible, am I reading the same thing, or has it been perverted or corrupted? Uh, That's what this presentation is going to be about today. Hopefully that will be useful to you. Um, Have you ever talked to someone, and pretty quickly you you bring up the Bible, and and pretty soon they say, well, you know, the Bible, it it can't really be trusted. You know, it's, it's just been so corrupted over the years, you know, all the translations, all the, the different things. It, you know, maybe it was true back in the day, but you just can't trust the Bible anymore because it's been changed so much. Um, you know, I have my quote here from the random guy down the block because that's what people, they just say that. And if you talk to many people about the Bible, you're going to find a number of people who just kind of throw this idea out. And it's not that they don't raise a good point. We should be concerned about the accuracy of the text. You know, how is it that it's, can, can we trust that it's been preserved accurately? But the majority of people who make this point are not really making it from a very educated background. It's just something we people can kind of throw out easily. We hear that, and maybe we don't know how to answer that dismissal of the text. Or maybe we ourselves wonder, well, I don't know. I've I've never studied that. You know, I just pick up my Bible and read it. I don't know how it got here. So maybe there are some questions and some doubts that we have. Um, and so that's what this uh, presentation is going to be about, trying to fill in some of the gaps in our, in our knowledge, uh, fill in some of the things we might be a bit ignorant about, and, and learn, okay, so this is a situation we're dealing with, and, and kind of realize that it's it's not a really accurate or fair claim for people just to casually throw out, uh, and it's not something that we need to... Um, to uh, it's not something that should shake or disrupt our faith. Uh, hopefully we'll see that as we go through these lessons. So again, what we are talking about is the transmission of the biblical text. Transmission is your fancy word. And transmission of the text refers to the passing down of the text through through ages, through generations. You've got the original writing, and then someone makes a copy of that, and someone makes a second copy copy from the same original but then someone makes copies of the copies and copies of the copies and so forth and then here we are in modern times and we've got translations of the copies of the copies and so you've got multiple levels and layers of the text and and that's what the transmission refers to And, and concerning the Bible we don't have the original biblical documents. If we did have an original biblical document, we wouldn't even know it was the original biblical document. It would just be another, you know, manuscript in the original language that would date um, very, very far back. So we are dealing with copies of copies. And today, English speakers, we're dealing with translations of copies of copies. So how can we know that what Moses with his own hand wrote, what Paul with his own hand from Roman imprisonment, what he wrote, is still accurately represented today. Um, and we're going to see that there is a scientific process called textual criticism. That's another keyword, textual criticism. Textual criticism is the scientific process or scientific method that is used to gather all relevant manuscripts and consider all of their variant readings, another keyword, variant reading. And compare and contrast, and think, and systematically go through all this evidence, and say, okay, based on what we have here, we can determine with X amount of um, certainty this is what the original said. Sometimes it's with near absolute certainty. Sometimes it's eh, it's most likely this is what the uh, this passage originally said, or this or this was the uh, original word that was used, um, and. Through these lessons, we are essentially going to be familiarizing ourselves with all of this. Uh, we're not going to walk out of here as experts, but you're going to walk out of here very familiar with, okay, so this is this is the rundown. And not to discredit myself, but there's nothing really that special uh, about me and about my research. Uh, if you're a homeowner, you know, you got things around the house you got to fix, you know, and so putting up some, some, some beams to make a wall, doing sheetrock, okay, that requires time and practice, but it's not like it's stretching your brain around things that you can't comprehend. Okay, you, you put things and you do the things and you eh, there right, we go. That's what a lot of our material is going to be. It's not going to be things that are beyond our ability to understand and even practice. But then you get to the electrical stuff or the plumbing stuff. And then there's, okay, so there's a lot of background information. I got to, I mean, really learn how electrical stuff, has a different language. Now, some of the information uh, involved in this process of textual criticism, it is that. There are going to be scholars who know the original languages, who have their hands on the actual original manuscripts. They're doing a lot of background information that is going to be beyond me, beyond us. But what we're able to do is take a lot of these scholarly conclusions and the evidence that they give us. And with that, we can very much use that and employ that to our own benefit. So that's kind of where we're going to be sitting. And that's my situation. Um, the only thing special about me is I have the time to do it. Uh, by the grace of God, I'm supported uh, financially to teach and to preach the gospel. Um, so that is my full time job. So I can dedicate or I was able to allocate amount of time in doing this research. So time is really the only difference between me and maybe you. But if you have the time, this is something that you are able to do yourself. It's really cool when you come across a text and you can look at what are the varying readings here and do your own textual criticism and say, okay, I do believe that this is the original reading here. So kind of what we're going to see here. Now, What is the value of this series? Why do we need to be talking about this, studying this? Well, for Bible believers, there are two things that we really care about, and it is truth and it is inspiration. Um, If you don't believe that the Bible is a true message and the accuracy of the message is not that critical, uh, Greek mythology, most people don't believe those are historical accounts uh, that represent truth. And so the accuracy in different mythological legends yeah, it's more of a curiosity, but we don't really care that much because our lives don't depend on it. We're not, we're not looking for truth. So if you don't believe the Bible is true, then the difference in these words is not going to make a difference. But if we do believe the Bible is true, then the difference in a few words can make a, make a big difference. So we care about that. And the reason why we believe the Bible is true is because we believe the Bible's teaching that the Bible is an inspired message. Uh, you can look at 1 Corinthians 2.12, where Paul says that they received the spirit and they can freely speak by the spirit the things given to them by God, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. And the argument is that down to the very words here is God's inspiration relating God's message to man. And so if you believe the Bible's claim that, it's, that it is true that it is inspired, then the specific words and the phrases matter a lot to us. Um, to the point that it's it's a matter of salvation. You know, in Acts 11, 14, it was said that Peter would speak words to Cornelius by which he would be saved. Okay, so Cornelius in person heard the words that would lead him to his salvation. But what if when I read Acts 10 and 11... The words Peter's speaking to me are no longer the same that he spoke to Cornelius in the very beginning. Well, then, if there's discrepancy in the words, then those words are not going to provide me my access to salvation. So we're we're dealing with pretty critical things here um, if we do believe the Bible's claims. That's why it matters so much to Bible believers. Um, And a couple of reasons why we need to be studying this is one is it is relatively unfamiliar information. You can read the Bible a lot. This information isn't found so much inside the Bible as it is maybe outside looking in on the Bible. So it's not something we hear every Sunday morning. Uh, It might be unfamiliar information. So let's take a weekend. Let's familiarize ourselves with it. Um, Also, we, we need to kind of understand that this is way more complex than we might originally think. You know, you grow up, if you you know, went to Sunday school, growing up in things, yeah, Your middle school, high school, your kind of simplified view is, God one day say, hey, here's the Bible, it's awesome. And you read it beginning to end, you know, all the books are there, all the words are there, and that's the picture. Well, if you look at the, the, the giving of the revelation, the transmission of the text through the years, it isn't that simple. You know, God uses human agency. There are human prophets, but there are also human scribes. God reveals this message through complicated circumstances. We're talking about thousands of years. uh, And messages being revealed in portions at different times, many different authors, multiple languages, and multiple locations. So, and and that's just writing the originals. Now, getting those ancient originals to us accurately today With, again, all the regions and different translations and so forth, it's complicated. When I first moved to New York, I was, I think, 20. And then you kind of learn how to question everything. You know, in a more homogenous environment, this is what it is. Awesome. Then you get introduced to new and different things, and you realize nothing is really as simple as it seemed like. And so my studies on this material started because I didn't know what to think. And I certainly didn't know what to tell people. So I got into it and was pretty pretty soon able to be comforted and reassured by the uh, evidence that I found. Um, also knowing this is going to help us to trust, to defend the message. For Peter 3.15 says we do need to be able to defend our beliefs. We need to know our teachings, our doctrines well enough to defend this is what the truth is, this is why I have reason to believe the truth, take it one step. Even further, this is the reason I believe that the words themselves can be trusted as accurate. Um, We will soon be able to trust the reliability ourselves uh, and soon communicate that to other people standing up for the reliability of the text to people who are doubting or people who are maybe again throwing out accusations well that it cannot be trusted. Uh, by the way, I might mention, mention this again later. When people say that, ah, you can't trust the Bible; it's been corrupted. Always ask them. Give me, give me one example. What, what's one example of where you think the text is has been corrupted or is not trustworthy? Now, they can. There are examples that can be given for sure. But if you study, you'll know those examples yourselves. And the people who are just saying this probably don't. <laughs> Now, if it's someone who's knowledgeable, then they'll, they'll give you a good conversation. Ooh, okay, I mean, think about those. But most people, ah, like, all right, well, well, tell me. And then you can, when they don't have a response, you will be like, well, actually, the Bible can be trusted. Uh, I've, I've done the research, uh, and it's been, it's been transmitted pretty accurately. They can just say claims, and you can respond the same. So, that right, it. We'll all right, here's the self-promote, uh, here's the podcast. Um, you're welcome to check that out. It goes into much more detail than we're gonna go into today. The lessons today, however, are gonna go beyond the material I've yet covered in the podcast, but you're very welcome to check that out. There's um, my email, website, and again, uh, also notes, slides can be made available if you want that. So just reach out to me. Uh, I can put this slide up again later if you need that information. So let's talk a little bit about the original biblical documents. Before we get to, you know, a study of the copies, let's talk about the originals. Um, And before we even do that, let's just talk about the Bible that we have in our hands today. Um, I don't know how familiar or not you are with the Bible, but let's just get a little bit connected to the Bible here. First thing is, remember that the word Bible, it just means the book or the books. Uh, The Bible is a compilation of multiple books. So we see it as a a book, but of course it's a collection of many different books. Um, And the naming of and organization of these books is, is an us process. It's just the way humans have decided to name and organize them throughout times. And it's interesting to look at different organizations and different namings of these books. So this is what uh, we will be familiar with if we pick up a Bible today. You get the first five books, the Pentateuch, which means five books. Then you've got the remaining history books and basic, well, in chronological order, more or less. Text within them can be a little bit out of chronological order. Collection of poetry books, and then finally the books of prophecy. And those would be scattered somewhere chronologically within the books of Joshua or really Genesis through Esther. Um, Then, oh, and also if you pick up a Catholic Bible, it'll have seven additional Old Testament books called apocryphal texts. Uh, We might talk about that a little bit later, Um, but we'll talk, that's more the the canon, which we'll we'll bring up in our last lesson. Here is a traditional Jewish organization of the Tanakh. So my understanding is if you pick up a Jewish Tanakh Old Testament, of course for them it's the Testament, right? Um, This is the way you would see it organized. So the, the Torah... Meaning law, that's the first five books we're familiar with there. But then the second category is the prophets. And for them, the prophets is includes the historical books as well. So you can see them there in the order that they're placed there. Then there is the twelve. Now we have the, uh, the minor prophets, which I always thought the minor prophets was a silly distinction. but just a little bit shorter, what I call them minor. Well, it's actually based on the fact that they were organized separately as the twelve in the, in the Jewish scriptures. So that kind of legitimizes that a little bit more. Then you've got the Ketuvim, which is the writings. You've got books of poetry, uh, some other historical books. Um, and then finally, other books, as called, which is Daniel and Nehemiah Chronicles. Um, another curious uh, distinction here or difference here is books like First and 2 Samuel, First and 2 Kings, First and 2 Chronicles are, were originally one book. They were split in half uh, probably because of you know, writing mediums, it's easier to divide the books. Uh, And so there are English Bibles, they're still divided, even though they were originally one single text. And same thing with Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, it was actually just one book. And so we've divided it into two separate books, but it's one text, so. So that's just a bit of a curiosity there for us. Take a look at the New Testament, um, you've got, also interesting, so you've got the 39 books, both our scriptures today and the Jewish scriptures, it's gonna represent the same books, same exact books, same number of books. Because during the New Testament, we got our 27 books. First section is history books, the life of Christ, then the history of the church. Then you've got Pauline epistles. I never understood the organization of the epistles. Uh, this didn't, wasn't clear to me until like five years ago, which maybe I'm dumb. But first you've got Paul's, all of Paul's letters, Paul's letters to churches, which are named after the church that was receiving them. Then you've got Paul's letters to individuals named by the individuals that were to receive them. Did you, know, did you know that? I didn't know that. Uh, then you've got uh, epistles written by other authors. Finally, Revelation, which is also another epistle, but just with a little bit extra flair. So let's talk a little bit then about authorship. The authorship of the original texts. Now, sometimes the book itself explicitly states who the author is. You know, the word Lord that came to Haggai. Boom, you got that. Paul says, hey, the bondservant of Jesus Christ Uh, Calls an apostle. So sometimes the author is explicitly explicitly revealed to us. Sometimes authorship is a bit more ambiguous. Ecclesiastes, you've got the words of the preacher, the son of David. Uh, he he, He refers to himself as being, you know, wiser than all who ruled over Israel before him. Which is weird for Solomon to say since there were only two people before him. It's a little overstated. So it's probably Solomon but there's ambiguity there or the letter of uh, uh, James in the New Testament, you know, it's most likely, you know, James, the elder of the Church of Jerusalem, but it didn't specify which James it is or Hebrews. She doesn't name the author at all, and so there's a uh, discussion about who that would have been uh, written by. Uh, sometimes other Bible books tell you who wrote which books. The book of Joshua refers to Moses as being the author of, you know, the book, The Law of Moses. Or Jesus... Refers to, you know, have you not read in the book of Moses? The Pharisees come to Jesus and say, you know, Moses wrote this. Jesus confirms that, saying, didn't you read in his book? So here's the the New Testament affirming that those books were originally written by Moses. Or 2 Peter 3.15 doesn't say which specific books, but it refers to the writings of Paul. So that's kind of helpful for us. Uh, Other times, the authorship is known traditionally. Now, the, the Gospels... Um, you know, they don't specifically name who wrote each gospel. But there's a guy here, uh, Irenaeus, who lived uh, from 130 to 202, so just a generation or so after the original witnesses. And you can see here he writes, After the departure, Mark, the disciple and interpreter of Peter, did also hand down to us in writing what had been preached by Peter. Luke, also the companion of Paul, recorded in the go- book the gospel preached by him. Afterwards, John, the disciple of the Lord, who also had leaned upon his breast, did himself publish a gospel (laughs) while in Ephesus. So a lot of the names attributed to some of these books are because traditionally that's what is said about those books. Early sources, early Christian quotes attribute certain books being written by certain authors. Um, Now, why does authorship matter to us? Well, if we believe that the message is the inspired word, Well, that can only be true if the actual original source, the author, was an inspired source. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Okay, if that's true, then whatever Moses wrote would have been the word of the Lord. But what if Moses didn't write that? What if some guy named Steve a thousand years ago said, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Well, then it wouldn't be from the actual inspired source. Moses would be by some fraud named Steve. Um, so authorship is of great importance for the believability or the is word, credibility of scriptures. Uh, same thing, 2 Peter 1.16, Peter says, you know, we're, we're not making up stories or just following cute stories. We're telling you the things that we were eyewitnesses of. So if Peter is an actual eyewitness and what he wrote down, okay, that's, that's the authoritative message that I want. But a hundred years later, some guy named Bill says, Peter wrote this. Well, now the inspiration of that message is no longer about it. So authorship is very important. Uh, the apostles and uh, the epistles themselves make this point. In Thessalonians, apparently there were some guys going around saying, the apostle Paul is telling you this and this and this and this. And it was it was by Bill and Steve together. They collaborated and says, here's a letter from Paul, making up a bunch of stuff. Paul says, listen, I, I don't want you to believe these other letters claiming to be from the apostles or claiming to be from me. They're, they're not from us. This letter is from me, and and you can tell because look at my special signature at the end of the book. Very interesting things to be included in the text. These are kind of details that are less likely to show up in fabricated (laughs) texts. But this was a real-life thing that was going on, and these real-life situations kind of find their way in the details, so that's that's pretty interesting. So authorship is quite important for us to consider. Also, considering authorship, just a couple of random things. Um, think about the idea of what is called essential authorship. Uh, I did a study on the, uh, the the Pentateuch. Did Moses write the Pentateuch? And one of the conclusions that people come to is Moses was the essential author of the Pentateuch. Again, essential authorship. What does that mean? He wrote the majority of it, but there was still a compilation process and still an editorial process that went along with his text. And we kind of see some evidence of that. The the first thing that we see being written down in scripture is after God delivered the Israelites in the wilderness from the Amalekite threat, God said to Moses, write this story down in a book, tell it to Joshua. So this is the first, as far as we know, biblical text being recorded and delivered verbally to, to, other, to other individuals, to Joshua. And then after that, what does Moses do? He writes down the Ten Commandments, and he writes down the law. At what point does Moses go back and write down the history of mankind through the book of Genesis? So he's writing these things at different times, and it would make sense for us to believe that then they would be compiled and gathered together. And it also lets us believe, okay, there will be certain editorial additions. Was Moses the guy who wrote in his book about how humble he was? Or one of my Bible students, a young man, he always loved the idea of Moses, you know, inspired of God. Then Moses died on the mountain. Wait, what, wait a second. <laughs> so the idea that there is the inspired prophet Moses. But then there also be, I mean, there's a lot of prophets throughout the Old Testament times. There'd be other inspired individuals who, through providence, through through inspiration, would compile and add and edit, that fits in the biblical picture of well. So that's kind of the uh, situation we're dealing with. So hope that makes sense. Another curiosity, there's a lot of dictation in Scripture. Baruch uh, was uh, took dictation for Jeremiah the prophet. Jeremiah got this big, 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 long message. Baruch put the whole thing down, then the king ripped it in half, burned it, he had to go back and do the whole thing all over again, and then added more to it. Meaning there was a second version of the original message, which is curious in its own right. Uh, Paul, his epistles, uh, when he wasn't in prison at least, were often by dictation. Uh, Tertius, uh, he himself said, Hey, here's me. I'm saying, I've been taking dictation, but here I am. Uh, at the end of Second Thessalonians, Paul takes the pen from the person taking dictation and says, All right, here's my handwriting. Now you know that this is actually from me. So, again, some pretty cool things to think about. Now, what about the date of authorship? What's my time? All right, we gotta keep moving here. What well, about date of authorship? Sometimes, again, it's explicitly stated. Other times, you gotta figure out by the content, uh, the historical context, and so forth. Um, look at the Old Testament. The Pentateuch would have been written. If it's written by Moses. Moses lived around 1400, 1300 BC ish. So, the uh, Pentateuch would have been written during that time. All the rest of the Old Testament books were from 1400 to about 400 B.C., so that's the time frame we've got for Old Testament books. Dating of New Testament books, uh, Gospels around 60s is what a lot of conservative scholars say. Uh, the Pauline Epistles uh, would have been earlier than that, a lot of them. Galatians is thought to be the very first New Testament text. Uh, people say that that would be written as early as 40 A.D., So that's the time frame we're working with there. Um, Why, uh, okay, and why does the date of authorship matter? Well, if the author matters, then they need to be written during the lifetime of the author. If, you know, Paul lived at this time, and then a book 200 later says this is written by Paul, probably wasn't written by Paul. There's a book of Enoch, you know, that came out, you know, around 300, BC, in a, well, he actually wasn't dead, he didn't die, but he wasn't around anymore to be the author of that book. So the, the date of authorship is significant um, because that can confirm or negate uh, who the author was. Now, there's lots of skepticism concerning authorship and concerning the date of authorship. And really, around mid-1800s and and afterwards, there became a very big uh, scholarly push against all traditional views of dates and authorship. And traditional views of dates and authorship are really those presented by the text itself. It says this, people believe that. But then there was a lot of pushback saying, well that, that can't really be true, citing things such as anomalies or anachronisms or stylistic differences, and there's a lot to be said about that. There's a lot of important things for us to consider. Uh, well, one thing I mentioned to Chase the other day, um, you know, the always refer to Abraham being from Ur of the Chaldees. Well, for my studies, it didn't seem like the Chaldeans lived in that region until really much, much later by the Neo-Babylonian time period. So how could he be from Ur of the Chaldees if the Chaldeans weren't even there? So that would be people—that's an anachronism. It's chronologically out of of place. And so so there are things like that we need to to wrestle through and think, well, what is that about? So there's legitimate stuff that can be brought up. But a lot of things being thrown out there by scholars that have a lot more weight because they are scholars are not really as legitimate as it might originally seem. Uh, Skeptics say Moses, of course, didn't write the Pentateuch. It was actually written by Josiah in around 640 B.C., You know how just Josiah, he discovers the law hidden in the temple somewhere, dusts it off, says, oh, man, we got to follow this law. Some suggest that's when Josiah found the law, meaning he wrote this book to then, you know, conform and command the people to be a certain way. So the Pentateuch was written, you know, around that time period. So the first five books of the Bible were written only 100 years before Babylonian captivity. And during those 100 years, the people completely rejected and did not follow any of that. Then somehow in 70 years, foreign captivity, they come back strong enough and unified by the law that they could rebuild the temple and start all of that. Can 100 years of a book being introduced explain all of that history there and the Jewish identity? Also, Josiah writes, or has someone write the law of Moses, Why spend 20 chapters on the dimensions of like the tabernacle curtains? (laughs) You know, if if this is this late book written to reform the people. And why write about the tabernacle if you had a temple? And why do you have a temple if the the, the Pentateuch hadn't been written yet? So a lot of that doesn't really make that much sense to me, but again, scholars try to push uh, late authorship there. a lot of scholars deny uh, Pauline authorship. Uh, it's kind of cool. There's a lot of books that they don't deny, which means if they don't deny, that means they cannot deny that. There's actually a lot of good extra biblical evidence of Paul and his work and so forth. There's just something they cannot deny that Paul did this and, this, and these other things. But they said, well, well, these letters he didn't write. I forget which it is. He did write Ephesians, but he didn't write Colossians, I think is what they would say. And one of the things that they would say, well, is they differ too much stylistically. That sounds a little subjective. It's probably because it is. Within five years, the Beatles wrote, I want to hold your Hand" and Lucy in the sky with diamonds. Stylistically, would you think that was the same, you know, four dudes? (laughs) Probably not, and yet yet here we are. Um, So not a lot of credence to that argument. Daniel, he gets a lot of uh, attack from skeptics, and for good reason. There's a lot of prophecy in the book of Daniel. And so they say, well, foretelling the future is not possible. In the natural world, natural world, it is impossible. So if his events that he prophesied go all the way up to around 160 BC or something, so he would have had to have written it after all of that happened. So rather than being written during captivity, it was written during the time of the Grecian Empire or whatever. But one thing that they forget is, well, two things they forget. One is we have a copy of Daniel from 100 BC. So they push authorship back to 160 BC, and the reason they have to do that is because we've got a copy at 100 BC. And it is not common at all to have such an ancient text represented so soon after the original. What that really means is, his writings would have been much, to have a copy that old, the original would have likely been, by a normal rationale, much older than that. But also, They push authorship back to 160 B.C. Daniel's prophecy goes beyond the Roman Empire on into 70 A.D. So even if they push back late authorship, that still doesn't explain the prophecies that were fulfilled after that authorship. So there's things for believers to to respond with and think about and say, okay, we're all biased. You know, everybody on the planet, we have our bias. So we need to try to be reasonable and rational dealing with our biases. You know, we, we do want to believe that scriptures are true, right? And so when we look at this information, it's going to be hoping to confirm the its reliability. We need to be careful to be honest in our pursuit of knowledge. But that's our bias, and they say, "Ah, hey, you guys are biased. But there's just as much bias to deny scriptures as well. As much as we want to trust in the scriptures, people want to discredit the scriptures and not be accountable to that. And that also enters into the picture of why you can quickly shove these things to the side. My point is, they've got some arguments they can bring up, but it's not like this closed case and we're silly, ignorant people. We can all be scholars. and We all have good things to say in this discussion. Cool. All right. All right, how much time I got? It says I got four minutes. We'll, we'll, yeah, we'll see what happens here. The original languages of the Bible. Uh, I've got two good podcasts. Well, I don't good. Two long podcasts on this. Uh, languages are very important. It's really connected to the history of the peoples. And so that's good to look at. But the Old Testament is essentially written in Hebrew. It's not actually not even properly called Hebrew. The Bible is called the language of Canaan. Uh, Hebrew refers to the people. But now Hebrew also refers to the language. But the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Hebrew is... Um, Man, very fascinating language, no uh, vowels. So you would only know how to pronounce things because you've heard it pronounced. And so if people stop speaking Hebrew and all you got are consonants. You're like, you, you have to make up your pronunciation, which is its own study. Um, and we'll, we'll leave it at that. There is also some Aramaic in the Old Testament. When the peoples went into uh, captivity, The lands of captivity were Aramaic-speaking, so when they came back from captivity, yes, Hebrew remained the written language, the liturgical, the religious language, but Aramaic was the new common or spoken language, which is very related to Hebrew. Um, But you find some Aramaic in the original Hebrew text, Um, and there's some examples there. The, The largest portion of Aramaic is from Daniel 2 to Daniel 7, and guess what? Daniel was in Babylon in an Aramaic-speaking, you know, nation. And this portion of Daniel that relates more to the nations around him is written in Aramaic. So that's curious. Uh, also, Ezra Nehemiah, letters written by certain dignitaries and so forth, those were recorded in the original text in the Aramaic language. So there is some Aramaic. But basically, all the Old Testament is Hebrew with just a couple spatterings of Aramaic here and there. I think that is actually all of the Aramaic on that page in front, I think. Testament was Greek. The Jewish peoples would have, again, Hebrew would have been the the liturgical language. They would read in the synagogues Hebrew, but everybody would be speaking Aramaic. But Greek was the common language of the world. When Alexander the Great conquered the world, he spread Greek (coughs) culture. He spread Greek language. Even though at this time the Roman Empire was in power, Greek was still the common language. So the New Testament authors chose to reveal their message in Greek So it would be more accessible to more people. I used to believe that there was Aramaic in the New Testament. but That's not exactly accurate. There's not Aramaic in the New Testament. There is Greek transliteration of Aramaic in the New Testament, meaning they would include Aramaic words, but rather than using the Aramaic alphabet, putting the Aramaic alphabet in the text, they would use the Greek alphabet and make Greek spellings of the Aramaic phonetics. So, talitha kum, Akeldama, those words. The same experience you have in English reading that, it's a different language, that's Aramaic. Well, it's English alphabet, showing you the phonetics of an Aramaic word. So it's exactly the same in Greek. I also didn't realize that there was a lot of that uh, with Hebrew as well. So Satan, right, An English transliteration of a Greek transliteration of a Hebrew word, satan. So same thing as rabbi, those are Hebrew words, just <coughs> spelled uh, with the Greek alphabet. So people say, ah, all these languages, all these translations. You got three languages in the whole Bible. Hebrew, some spatterings of Aramaic, and Greek. And we've got copies, what, in Hebrew uh, and in Greek. So the whole translation, the whole language thing, that is the easiest uh, argument to dismiss. Someone says that, then you know that they don't know. What they're talking about is say oh, actually only these original languages and we have copies in those languages so we don't even need the translations we can go back to the original so the original language so just, just keep that in mind there uh, let's talk a little bit about the mediums used amount of time for trans uh for the original documents you've got pretty famous you know ten commandments on tablets of stone uh we don't have these materials with us today of course uh but then you've got papyrus you know, papyrus is an ancient uh, process started back in the fourth millennium, uh, very well used uh, in the times of Moses. Um, they were not made into codices or books until the third century. And as you read the Old Testament, you read the word book. When you read the word book, think more of document. A uh, book for us today is this guy. That's a, code, that's a codex. That was an invention much later. But when you think book, it would include the concept of a scroll or a stone tablet, more comprehensive. It's really a document. Um, we'll talk more about that later when I can. Vellum is was the new paper. It's made from animal skins. Um, it's uh, You're able to erase and make corrections with it. That replaced papyrus. Uh, the majority of our biblical documents are in Vellum. Um, we'll talk about that later, hopefully, if I can come back. Um, all right, last thing we'll say, look at a little bit <laughs> example of transmission found within the Bible. The text was meant to be transmitted, designed to be transmitted. The original. Moses writes down the original himself. It's distributed. He gives, he wrote the law and gives the law to the priests. Say, you guys need to read the law. Here's a distribution of the original. Then copies of the original will be made. The king would make his own copy. Joshua, when they crossed uh, the the river again, uh, he writes the law on stones, making a copy of the law of Moses. So we see the transmission here. Um, Paul writes the letter to the Colossians, it says share, Colossians, right, yeah, Colossians, share with the Laodiceans, they probably wouldn't send the original, maybe they would, they probably make a copy and share, so you see sharing, copying, distributing, uh, there was uh, the letter uh, to the book of Revelation was addressed to seven different churches, you think they got one copy and then shared it <laughs> a couple of months at a time, probably seven copies distributed all at once to each of the seven churches. So, this is what it is. This is how the text uh, was originally written, subsequent generations, and we'll see how it came to us today. All right, thank you guys so much. Good attention. Um, we'll go ahead and take a break there. I, think, I guess 10-minute break. I'll, I'll let Chase the other the things he said. ...be inspired to, as they had an editorial part in the final shape of Scripture. And so the scribes would be those who would... Uh, oftentimes professionally take whatever copy they had and then make more copies of that, right? So would that be, would they be inspired? I think the short answer is no. Uh, We should see that the copying process of the original text being in the human realm, so you and we're going to see a lot of human error in the scribal process. Now I mentioned a little bit with uh, the penitent, for instance uh, that there would be a compilation, compiling process, some editorial process. And even saying that, you get into a little bit of Muddy Waters because the Bible doesn't say, and then the inspired compilers did this, or this was inspired, you know. And so how inspired, inspired were these compilers or people making editorial comments? I I think the way we see it is this. You know, the, the text itself... Uh, through prophecy, through wisdom, in my case, has convinced me that it is, it is from God. You know, things done through prophecy, Isaiah, Daniel, the book of Genesis, uh, that can't be explained through, through human capabilities, but rather a divine source. But, again, if the words have been tampered and changed, then that would ruin that. So you look at the transmission and say, okay, well, the text is, has retained its original message throughout the generations. So I can trust that based on the trust that I have in these things I believe in God I would also believe in God's providential work and preserving and protecting his word. You can't start with "Well, God providentially did it all that wouldn't make much uh, sense to someone who is not a believer but if the text itself can, can prove to you it's a divine and trustworthy document well God is here, God revealed his word you would also believe that God providentially acts to make sure that we have a trustworthy word today. And that would be the realm of faith, right? Um, And so I do believe that God providentially made sure that his books were compiled properly and providentially helped the original saints to to rest and rely on the uh, proper books. And God, I believe, providentially had his hand through the scribal process as well. Specifically, I don't know how that works, or what he specifically did. It's not revealed to us. But short answer is no, uh, scribes would not be inspired. Um, the Septu- Septuagint translation, the, the translating the Hebrew Old Testament to a Greek, trans- New Testament, Greek Old Testament, not an inspired process. There's a lot of interesting elements there. And yet the inspired apostles used this uninspired translation process in our New Testament-inspired text. So... Uh, so that kind of shows the apostles' trust in God's providence over the transmission of the text as a whole. Did that make any sense? Yeah. Right, That's my one question that I have. Anybody else have one? It's okay if you go. We hope this lesson was helpful to you. If you're enjoying what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, leave us a rating, a review so we can reach more people. If you'd like to study the Bible with us, please reach out, 717-585-0949. You can email us at capitalcitychristians at gmail.com, or for more information on group studies and worship, check out capitalcitychristians.com. Thanks so much for listening.